The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week, we're digging into a tale of intrigue that may have changed the course of physics research in the 20th century. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Frank Close, a professor of theoretical physics at Oxford University, the author of over 200 research papers about quarks and gluons, and also the author of 15 popular books on physics, including The Infinity Puzzle, the story of the 50 years' work that culminated in discovery of the Higgs boson. Between 1997 and 2000, Frank Close was head of communications at CERN, and in 2014, he won the Michael Faraday Medal for Science Communication from the Royal Society of London. He's here today to talk about his recent book, Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. Frank, welcome. Hello. So what drew you in about Bruno Pontecorvo and ultimately prompted you to write a book about him? As a physicist, I had written a book called Neutrino, which was the life uh, of Ray Davis, who spent 40 years trying to show that the sun emits these weird particles called neutrinos. And at the age of 87, he finally got the Nobel Prize for that. But while researching his life... I became aware that Bruno Pontecorvo was always there in the background. And uh, I knew of Bruno because I, by chance, live in the same town that he had lived in. Uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves, in 1950, he disappeared to the Iron Curtain, and he became quite interesting for that reason alone. But I decided that his life as a scientist uh, had never really been written about. He would have been one of the great scientists of the 20th century, in my opinion, if he had not disappeared to the Soviet Union for the second half of his life. So as I researched his life as a physicist, I increasingly was hit by this question, why did he go? And what started out as a scientific biography uh, ended up being also uh, somewhat of a spy thriller. So uh, before we dig too far into the details of his life and his contributions to physics, um, maybe let's zoom out and give us an idea of who Bruno Pontecorvo was broadly, uh, the sort of Pontecorvo elevator pitch, so to speak. <laughs> well, um, I called it half-life because his life was in two distinct halves, not just the physicist or spy separation, but chronologically, it was exactly halfway through his life that he made this decision to quit the West and, and go to the East. So let's take his life from the start. He was born in 1913, the same year that the uh, model of the atom as a nucleus with planetary electrons whirling around it was invented. He was born uh, in Pisa. Uh, then he became a student uh, in 1932, the same year that the neutron was discovered, the neutron which became the spark that would light the atomic nucleus and be the seed of nuclear power and eventually nuclear weapons also. The year of its discovery was when he was working in Rome as a student and became a, a research student of Enrico Fermi, who was one without doubt one of the great scientists uh, of the 20th century. And it was during his time in Rome that Pontecorvo, by accident, discovered the phenomenon which became the seed of, of modern nuclear power. He discovered that, that they were irradiating uh, various substances with neutrons and trying to induce radioactivity in those substances. And Pontecorvo noticed that the amount of radioactivity seemed to change depending upon where in the laboratory they were doing the experiment, as if some 
weird external influence was affecting it. And Fermi had the insight that what must be happening was that the neutrons were being slowed down and increasing their ability to induce radioactivity. And this trick of slowing neutrons down became the key, eventually, to nuclear reactors, nuclear power. After having made that discovery, um, Pontecorvo then graduated and went to Paris to work with Frederick Joliot and his wife Irene Curie, the Joliot Curies as they were known. Uh, they had just won the Nobel Prize themselves, and Paris was now one of the major research places in nuclear physics uh, in the late 30s. And during his time there was when many exciting things happened. One was, uh, as a scientist, he now became internationally established working on a thing called nuclear isomers. What they are doesn't need to concern us, other than just to say in passing that the other big expert on nuclear isomers at that time was in Russia, Igor Kurchatov, who within uh, four or five more years would be leading the Soviet's atomic bomb program. So he and Ponty knew about each other professionally from the 1930s. It was during his time in Paris that he became enamoured of communism, and we now know joined the Communist Party. Uh, he was there, he got married, he had a young child, and in 1940, when the Nazis invaded, he had to get out, because being an Italian in France at that stage was not a good thing. And also, with his Jewish background, he was no friend of the Nazis either. So he and his wife and young child, Gilles, managed to escape to North America, where in the USA uh, he became uh, an oil prospector, which sounds at first sight an odd thing to happen, but it turns out that he was one of the first to introduce nuclear physics techniques into the oil industry. The idea was you drill a borehole, you lower uh, a source of neutrons down the hole, the neutrons irradiate the rocks and things all around, and by recording the varieties of radiation that come back, a bit like a barcode in a store, you see if you can work out what sort of rocks are present. And from this, it was possible to identify oil-bearing shales and identify uh, oil deposits. And this was a great success. Uh, this was 1940 through 42. Now, of course, during this period, the Americans got involved in the Second World War after Pearl Harbor. And Ponty discovered that his radioactive sources were sort of drying up. He couldn't find them. And he went to see his mentor, Enrico Fermi, who by that stage had also uh, settled in the United States. And unknown to Ponty at that time, Fermi was building the first nuclear reactor in Chicago. And during his conversations with Fermi, Fermi got very interested in what Pontecorvo was doing. And by a series of events, uh, Pontecorvo himself then became involved in the Manhattan Project, uh, not building the bomb at Los Alamos, but working in Canada, uh, initially in Montreal and eventually at Chalk River, building a nuclear reactor, a heavy water reactor, what was called the Anglo-Canadian arm of the, of the Manhattan Project. And if it's the case that he did pass any information to the Soviet Union, it would have been during his time on, the, on that if it was the case that Pontecorvo passed any information to the Soviets, it was during his time working on the, the uh, Anglo-Canadian reactor program. He was there until about 1948, and then he moved across to Harwell. The war having finished, the Brits were building uh, the first uh, nuclear reactors in Western Europe, and Pontecorvo, as part of that community, moved to Harwell, where he was, by chance, uh, a colleague of Klaus Fuchs, who is, of course infamous as being one of the atomic spies. 
And it was actually Fuchs's exposure and arrest in February 1950 that uh, we now understand was the domino effect that led to the disasters uh, for Pontecorvo, because Pontecorvo was a member of the Communist Party, a fact which he had kept secret. His colleague, Klaus Fuchs, had been exposed uh, as a spy. Uh, McCarthyism was on the rise uh, in North America, in the USA, and Ponte Felt was also beginning to spill over to Europe. Um, and so he then contacted the security people at Harwell to say, look, I've got uh, communist relations. You should know that fact. And that was enough to get them worried. Um, they had no proof that he himself had passed any information. And one of the things that I've established, having gone through all of the FBI files and MI5 files that have been released, the most they had was gossip about his communist interests. But that was enough to make them concerned, and they said, look, it is obviously best that he's no longer working on classified work here at Harwell. He should move to a university where he can continue doing work without any uh, threat to passing secrets, if indeed he had done that. Um, and so in preparation for the move to the University of Liverpool, which is where he would eventually have settled, uh, he and his family went off on holiday for six weeks in the summer. And they never returned from that holiday. At the end of that uh, time away, they disappeared off the face of the earth. And for five years, nobody knew where they were. The, the suspicion was that they had gone to the Soviet Union, as it <laughs> indeed turned out. But why he had gone so suddenly and what secrets he may have taken with him was one of the big questions. Whether he had been the spy that slipped through the net had never been resolved for 50 or 60 years. Five years later, the Soviets produced him in a dramatic press conference for propaganda reasons. Um, he spent the rest of his life in what was the Soviet Union, and uh, he wasn't allowed, none of his family was allowed to make any contact with anybody in the West. They had no contact with their own family by mail for five years, and indeed, neither he or his wife ever saw their parents again. He wasn't allowed to leave the Soviet Union. Um, it wasn't until 1978, 28 years later, that he was finally allowed to go to Italy for a, a scientific uh, meeting. And he died in 1993. And uh, the question as to whether he was or was not a spy, as well as being a great scientist, is the one that has intrigued people ever since. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with professor and physicist Frank Close, who is also the author of the book Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. Pontecorvo started his career in rather fine company, uh, which you mentioned. He worked both with Fermi and the Joliot Curies early in his career. Indeed. In fact, uh, he was uh, in very good company, certainly, and he established himself very rapidly as one of the brightest young nuclear physicists. He was in the right place at the right time, doing the right sort of things. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't involved in the discovery of fission. That was uh, the fission, which was the key to, of course, everything that subsequently happened in the uh, atomic warfare area. Uh, that was made in Germany by Hahn and Strassmann. But Joliot and people at Paris very quickly started doing experiments to see if fission would lead, would produce further neutrons. The idea of fission was a neutron splits an atom of uranium in two, and in the process releases further neutrons, which can split further atoms. So if you produce two neutrons, which split two atoms, and they produce four, which produce eight, and so forth, you get what's called a chain reaction, which can lead to the explosive situation of the atomic bomb. However, 
that was not known whether that would happen or not. And it was established by Joliot's group in Paris that indeed more neutrons are produced than, than you use up. And so the possibility of a chain reaction suddenly opened up and Ponty was certainly aware of that, was involved uh, as a kibitzer in part uh, on those experiments. So he was right in there. So at this time, uh, nuclear research and fission research is still pretty open. Um, there's a couple of teams working around the world. They're communicating with each other. But at some point, this type of research closes in and becomes secret. When is this? Um, this research was uh, pretty open until 1939-40 time. The U.S. were not actively into the Second World War until Pearl Harbor, the end of 41. Um, it was around 40-41 when uh, the possibility that uh, this should be made secret really uh, uh, hit home. I mean, the, the Brits, who were already involved in the war, were very nervous about the fact that uh, research in this area was still being published openly in the literature. Um, the idea that plutonium, which is also being produced in, in nuclear reactors, but that plutonium could itself be uh, the seed for a weapon... Um, there was horror when the idea of that uh, was published in the open literature, and it was around that point that the whole thing then became very secret. Uh, and one of the ironies of the secrecy, and then, of course, the Manhattan Project began and scientists moved to Los Alamos to start developing the weapon. Um, but one of the ironies that I discovered was that in the Soviet Union, um, one of the Soviet nuclear physicists who had been conscripted into the army um, during a weekend, he had a weekend off uh, and he went to the local university to see what uh, developments there had been in, in nuclear fission. And he discovered two amazing things. First of all, that there had been no papers at all in this area published in the last year, which he thought, well, that's very odd because this is an extremely exciting area of physics that has suddenly opened up. And the second thing he noticed was that the big scientists like Bohr and Fermi and others hadn't published anything at all in the last year. And he put two and two together and realised, aha, this means that they are all working in secret developing this. And he then contacted Stalin to try to get the Soviets uh, uh, up to speed. And that was indeed part of the drive behind the uh, the Soviets getting going on their own atomic program. Uh, it wasn't a case that they, well, or spies had already started ferrying information to them. But even uh, in the putting two and two together with a bit of common sense, it was possible to deduce that something was going on in the West. And uh, indeed it was. Something was up. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned when Ponte Corvo first became interested in communism, but how and why did he come to communism? Well, uh, as an intellectual in the 1930s, um, people from that generation had a decision to make, that uh, you had got fascism on the rise, uh, in Germany, obviously, uh, Mussolini in Italy, which, of course, where Pontecorvo is living. And in Spain, you had the, uh, the Spanish Civil War, which was really where fascism and anti-fascism came together and were uh, in conflict. And I think intellectuals at that time had a decision to make. Are you fascist or are you anti-fascist? And Pontecorvo, in part, obviously, coming from a family with a Jewish connection as well, but being an intellectual uh, was very much anti-fascist. 
And so the, the, the idea of anti-fascism was uh, in his genes, if you like. Um, during his time in Paris, I mean, Paris in the late 30s was a very exciting place to be. It had um, a government which, in, which involved communists in the, uh, the, the, uh, the collaborative government there. It was openly elected, and I think Bloom, the, uh, the prime minister or president, um, had this coalition involving communists. But the communist party were the one that actively took up the, uh, the sword, metaphorically, uh, against fascism. And so... Ponty became enamoured of this fact. But key to this, I think, was the fact that his cousin, uh, Emilio Sereni, six years older than, than Bruno, I mean, Bruno was in, came from a very intellectually gifted family, but even among that family, Emilio Sereni was even more dramatically uh, an intellectual who became a communist and post-war was a communist member of the Italian government. And he was in Paris... And he strongly influenced uh, Bruno, and Bruno went with him to rallies um, against uh, fascism, against uh, Nazism, which the communists were driving forward. And the day, the irony is perhaps that uh, Bruno decided to join the Communist Party the same day that Hitler and Stalin signed their non-aggression pact, which is ironic in the extreme. Communism is such a boogeyman here in North America and has been for some time. Um, over here, the narrative of communism rising in response to fascist movements in Europe doesn't tend to get a lot of play. And I think we forget that a lot of people both here and in Europe who belong to communist parties were highly educated thinkers, and many of them were scientists. Um, Ponte Corvo was certainly not alone in his communist leanings. I mean, there were other well-known scientists who were communists as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think that you know, looking back today, what one forgets what the reality was back then. I mean, even in uh, USA and uh, North America in the 30s, the Great Depression led to a huge uh, interest in communism. The, the Communist Party was certainly uh, played a role in the... I mean, not an expert uh, on this, but uh, the Great Depression in the States certainly left its mark. Um, and there were many scientists and intellectuals in all spheres that uh, followed uh, communism. The the concepts uh, of communism are one thing. The way that it was used and abused uh, by, by Stalin and other dictators is, is another thing entirely. Um, so I think that is perhaps where some confusion may have, have generated. Um, but you're certainly right. I mean, the Robert Oppenheimer is a prime example. He was not, as far as I'm aware, himself a member of the Communist Party, but like many, he was enamoured of its ideas. And... As I said earlier, in the decision, are you a fascist or are you anti-fascist, the answer, I think, was pretty well uniformly clear. But then it came on to the 1950s, and the world had turned, in a way, and uh, McCarthy exploited this idea of reds under the bed and uh, had this uh, persecution uh, of a, a witch hunt of people, communists, real and imagined. And you had this tyrannical situation where you were being asked to defend your right to work by naming names and uh, if you couldn't name enough names you yourself fell under suspicion in, in an ironical way uh, McCarthy era in the USA was practicing the very things that it abhorred in, in the Soviet Union 
So uh, Ponte Corvo started out as an admitted communist. He was fairly well, open about uh, his leanings. But when did he start to hide his politics? Well, well you said as an admitted communist. Um, I'm not sure that he ever admitted it. Um, he joined the Communist Party in 1939, but he didn't uh, make a big public deal about the fact. Uh, indeed, uh, when it came to him joining the Manhattan Project, this fact was certainly not admitted. Uh, and it also led to one of the great uh, conflicts, as I discussed uh, later. After his disappearance in 1950, the FBI in the States and MI5, uh, their analogues in the United Kingdom, were uh, really concerned as to who had messed up, who had failed to identify the fact that P Ponte Corvo had been allowed to take part in this, and he was uh, a communist sympathiser. Because what had happened was this. In 1942, while he was working in the oil industry in, in Oklahoma, um, America having entered the war meant that Ponte Corvo, an Italian, was now an enemy alien. And so two FBI agents visited his house. At the time, as it turned out, when he was actually away in the oil field, so his wife was there, and the agents interviewed her. But in the course of the interview, they noticed, quotes communist literature, unquote, on his shelves. Now, we don't know what this consisted of, whether it's pamphlets, books, or, or what have you, uh, but this fact was noted and recorded, but somehow failed to get through to the Brits when uh, they were making the decisions on Ponte Corvo joining the Manhattan Project. And so the fact that this failed to get through then became somewhat of a cause celebre uh, in 1950. And going through the classified papers, which have now been released, I discover, to put no finer point on it, that J. Edgar Hoover and his uh, analogue, Percy Silito in, in London, uh, had basically a cover-up that they couldn't establish which of the two agencies had screwed up, to put no finer point on it, and decided it was better to keep this under wraps as best they could, to cover their own backsides, which they successfully did for 50 years. Um, so he very successfully hid his communism. And it was only in 1950 when Klaus Fuchs, his uh, colleague, uh, his work colleague at Harwell, was exposed, that Ponty decided perhaps it might be in a in a chess analogy, uh, to sacrifice a pawn, <laughs> uh, to admit that he had communist relatives uh, in the hope that this might uh, uh, take the heat off him. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and today we're talking about the life and work of Italian physicist and possible Soviet spy, Bruno Pontecorvo, with Frank Close, author of the book Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. We'll be right back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm here with Frank Close, author of Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. So uh, you mentioned that Pontecorvo starts his life in North America working in essentially the private sector, working in the oil industry. But how did he get involved in the nuclear efforts in North America during the Second World War? 
It turned out that when he visited Fermi in 1942, the fact that Fermi was building a nuclear reactor at that stage was, of course, totally secret. So Ponte Corvo, as far as I'm aware, uh, wasn't told that. Uh, But building a nuclear reactor, um, there's two parts to it. One is the simple bit. Neutrons hit uranium and they produce energy and produce uh, plutonium as a byproduct. That's the easy physics. The reality is that your uranium, there's uranium, there's concrete, there's lots of metal around. It's in a building and so forth. And so the neutrons hit everything and they make everything radioactive. There's the possibility that uh, some of the surrounding materials, uh, the radioactivity induced might poison the reactor and even stop it working. So in practice, uh, Fermi had a huge amount of problems to solve. And then he discovered that here was his former pupil, by chance, who had been doing similar sort of experiments to what Fermi needed the answers to. Bruno had been irradiating rocks with neutrons in the hope of identifying rock strata that would lead to oil. That was what Ponty wanted to achieve by it. But what he'd been doing, irradiating rocks and seeing what happened, was the sort of thing that Fermi needed to know the answers to in building a practical working nuclear reactor. So he was very interested in what Ponte Corvo was doing and realised that Ponte Corvo probably knew more at that time about the practicalities of what the nuclear reactor people needed than probably anybody in the world. And so that's how Ponte became recommended uh, to the, the project. And in fact, uh, visiting Fermi at that time uh, was Hans von Halben, who had known Ponte Corvo during their time in Paris in the 30s. And Halben, at that stage, was gathering a team together to work in Canada on the Anglo-Canadian project. So it was that happy coincidence that brought Ponte Corvo into the, the, the fold. So he ended up working in the project in Chalk River. Um, but what, how was this work valuable to the broader Manhattan Project and the American nuclear program? It's very interesting at this point. There's there's two strands here. One is, of course, the Brits and the Americans were working together to a common goal. Um, But at the same time, they had very different long-term agenda and indeed uh, were quite suspicious of one another. Um, The particular thing that Pontiac brought to the nuclear reactor program was that the techniques that he'd been using for finding oil turned out to be very useful for finding uranium. And indeed, uh, there was the mapping of uranium in uh, northern Canada that was done in the during the wartime using Ponte Corvo's technique. And that was very useful for finding uranium, which was one of the essential uh, ingredients needed for nuclear reactors and, of course, for the nuclear program in its entirety. The long-term agenda, however, uh, of the uh, Anglo-Canadian arm was to build a nuclear reactor for the post-war applications of nuclear physics to generating power and hopefully to clean up uh, the uh, nuclear uh, power post-war. The Americans were at Los Alamos building um, the nuclear bombs that would eventually be dropped on uh, on Japan. And General Groves, who was in charge of the American program, he was very suspicious about everybody. I mean, Groves would have had nobody talking to anybody. He wanted to operate on a uh, needs-to-know basis. He, he would have had people within Los Alamos not talking to one another if he had had his own way as a military man. But science doesn't work that way. The way that progress happens in science is 
lot of smart people with different areas of expertise sharing ideas, coffee housing, if you like, you know, talking together, and then random ideas come together and things move forward. And that's the way that science works. And Oppenheimer was able to convince Groves that that is what they had to do within Los Alamos. And indeed, uh, they, they did. But Groves managed to some degree to stop, to, to make firewalls between different parts of the program, uh, rather crazily, that Los Alamos and work going on in Chicago, for example, uh, Groves was trying to stop them communicating. Likewise, he was very adamant that there should be a very limited communication between the American team in Chicago with Fermi and the Anglo-Canadian team uh, over in, in Chalk River, even though the strategic goals were all the same. Uh, and so... Scientists being scientists, they were much more probably prepared to share information for their real needs than Groves and the military people would have been happy with. And indeed, when the uh, Anglo-Canadian team, half a dozen of them, Ponticorvo, Nun May, a person who was also exposed for spying by chance, and others visited uh, Fermi's group in Chicago, there was an agenda of questions that they wanted to have answers to. And to put no finer point on it, you could say that these questions were scientifically valid and they were the very things that they needed to know to move the project forward. And the scientists at Chicago and in Canada would mutually want the program to proceed in a certain way. But in a technical sense, you could argue that Ponticorvo and the others from Canada were spying on the American program. And uh, I just say that because later on, you know, when Ponticorvo is in Moscow, uh, even if he had never done anything at all untowards on the spying and passing information to the Soviet Union, the possibility of bringing pressure by the fact that he had technically committed what was a capital offence, namely taking information from the USA and taking it over for the Anglo-Canadian programme in Canada, technically that was a, an electric chair offence. <sighs> it's such an interesting time period in history. Uh, fascinating that there were so many scientists involved, uh, really high-level, um, brilliant scientists involved in very various spying things, uh, this fascinating period of time. Yes, I mean, everybody has heard of Klaus Fuchs. Fewer have perhaps, well, in Canada, probably lots of people have heard of Alan Nunn May. It's a bit of an irony that the first... Uh, person to be exposed as a senior scientist for passing information uh, to the, the Soviets was Alan Nunmay, who was a member of the, uh, the team uh, in Canada. He was exposed in 1946 when the cipher clerk in the Russian embassy in Ottawa defected and brought with him the name of various uh, people who had been uh, involved in spying for the Soviets. Uh, it's a bit of an irony that uh, Nun May happened to be a colleague of Bruno Ponticorvo at uh, Chalk River, and then later in his career, Bruno is a colleague of Klaus Fuchs in Harwell. Uh, these are scientists that people have heard of who were uh, passed information and bo in both cases uh, were sent to, to jail for an extended period for, for doing so. Fewer people have heard of Ted Hall, who was a brilliant uh, young scientist at Los Alamos. He was an 18 years old student at Harvard, the youngest person on the Manhattan Project. Uh, he also passed information, uh, which was very important uh, for the, the Soviets. And uh, he was identified only post-war 
but basically he denied everything and he was never uh, prosecuted because uh, the last thing I think that people wanted to do in the States was to admit the fact that uh, they had identified this spy because we had cracked the Soviet diplomatic codes. That was a secret we wanted to keep to ourselves. And so basically Ted Hall got away with it. So in a way, one could actually say the spies you have heard of are the ones which were not as successful as the ones you probably haven't heard of. How much damage could Ponte Corvo do as a spy? Um, leaving aside for a second what evidence there is or isn't, and we'll get to that, but what was at stake? What knowledge did he have that would be valuable to the Soviets that American Britain maybe wouldn't want the Soviets to have? Well, actually, I think that uh, he had no information that was relevant to making uh, an atomic weapon. The two things which I've identified certainly found their way from uh, Canada to the Soviet Union, in addition to the stuff that uh, Nunn May did, there was Nunn May passed a, a sample of rare uranium, which he had obtained from Fermi's group. We've established that a, another independent sample uh, of a type of uranium went from Canada to uh, the Soviet Union. The other thing we know is that the blueprints of the Canadian reactor also uh, went to the Soviet Union sometime in 1949-1950. And uh, I would suspect uh, that if indeed it's the case that Pontecorvo passed information, uh, the way it could probably have happened is this. I said earlier that Igor Kurchatov uh, professionally knew Pontecorvo from their work in the 1930s on nuclear isomers. The first thing that Kurchatov did in 1943 when he became the head of the Soviet atomic bomb project was to say, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. What's going on in North America? Who are the, where are the labs working on uh, weapons or whatever? And who's at them? So he would certainly have been made aware of the fact that Bruno Pontecorvo is working in Canada and he would hardly have failed to notice this man because he knew of him professionally. And the fact that Pontecorvo was in the Communist Party would perhaps also have been uh, known to them if they were efficient. So I think the fact that Pontecorvo would have been approached is almost clear. What he said when he was approached, of course, we will never actually know. But if I'd been Kurchartoff, I think the way I would have done it would have been this. I would have said, could you help me? I mean, you are a reactor expert. Uh, you're uh, a communist member. Uh, member of the Communist Party, you're very sympathetic to the aims of the Soviet Union. Could you help us build a nuclear reactor to create power for the good of the Soviet citizenry, uh, to improve their quality of life? It's nothing whatsoever to do with military enterprise, etc. And in that circumstance, it would have been pretty churlish to have said no. And uh, if I had been in this situation, I can easily imagine how one would have thought, well, why not? Um, and of course, once you've done that, then, uh, if you like, they've got you. I should just say one further thing that is often asked, you know, why did any of these spies pass information to the Soviets? Well, it's easy to forget at this stage that actually the Soviets were our allies. And one can argue, and I think it's a very powerful argument, that had the Soviets not lost so many of their own citizens, in particular in Stalingrad and so on, um, that it's quite possible that Hitler would have won the war in Europe. Uh, that it was the Soviets, the great sacrifices that they made, 
that enabled us to remain uh, in, in the contest, if you like. And yet they were frozen out of the nuclear uh, program. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt basically agreed to freeze Stalin out because they were, well, Churchill in particular uh, was suspicious uh, of Stalin. And so uh, the Soviets were frozen out of this project politically, and yet the scientists uh, did not understand that. Uh, many of them, as we've discussed earlier, you know, had very significant uh, leanings to, to anti-fascism or, or even to communism and also would feel that uh, in order to get the atomic bomb before the Nazis, and that was the get name of the game, uh, to, to share our know-how with our Soviet colleagues, we've got a much better chance of getting there first if we do so. So I think the reasons for them sharing it wasn't sort of a huge malevolence. In fact, quite the contrary. I think it was sort of quite uh, conscience-driven, uh, pragmatic, practical uh, idealism. This is Science for the People. Today we're talking about Bruno Pontecorvo, noted nuclear physicist and possible Soviet spy with Frank Close, author of the book Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm here with Frank Close, author of Half-Life, The Divided Life of Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. So do we have any actual sort of solid or solid-like evidence that Pontecorvo passed information to the Soviets before defecting? Well, I think we have solid evidence that somebody senior at Chalk River, in addition to uh, Alan Nunmay, who had been arrested and was already in jail by 1946, but somebody um, in the period up to 1948 passed uh, information. Uh, so there is a Dr. X still to be found. And if it is not, or if it was not Bruno Pontecorvo, then it was somebody else. Uh, that's the nearest one can get to saying anything with an absolute certainty. There is one other thing that I think I've established also, though, is why it was that he disappeared so suddenly in 1950. And that involves the famous uh, double agent uh, Kim Philby, who seemed to have his finger in every pie. Uh, and that, if you like, was the scoop that I, I, I discovered. In 1950... At the end of July, Pontecorvo and his family went off on a wonderful camping holiday in Italy. Uh, they were away for about six weeks, and they were due to come back to Harwell uh, at the end of that. And everybody who remembered him at that time were convinced that he went off on that holiday happily relaxed, uh, no hint at all that anything untoward was happening. One of his sisters was with them, his sister Anna, and she is still alive. And I, I met her and talked with her. And she again confirmed what she'd said to MI5 60 years ago, that everything about her brother seemed carefree. She left the holiday a couple of days before the end and, and came home. So uh, but when she left, Bruno was still, you know, a happy, carefree man. And his disappearance was a total surprise. Now, 
what happens uh, in my story in this was that I had been going through the papers that exist in the National Archives in London and uh, in America and so forth as a scientist. Uh, any other people who have specialised in these sort of spy things have been historians or people with uh, special interests along that area. But as far as I can tell, I'm the first time that somebody had come at this from the scientific end, and I began to sort of feel that there were some scientific questions which ought to have been asked and didn't appear to have been asked and suggested to me that some papers probably were still being held back. And so uh, I contacted... uh, Peter Hennessy, Lord Hennessy, uh, a historian who I've known for a long time, and asked in the Catch-22, I said, look, if you believe that there are papers still being held back, how can you use freedom of information to get access to them if you don't know they're there in the first place? So he said, well, write me a letter about what you're interested in, and I'll see what I can do. So I did. Never expected to hear any more at all. And then I get this letter from him saying, did MI5 get back to you after I forwarded them your letter? Which was a interesting thing to happen. And the answer is yes, they did. And basically they said that uh, a file that had been lost had now been found and available for inspection. Now, whether you put quotes around lost and quotes around found, I, I don't know. But anyway, um, and this file was very interesting because up to that time, all the files on Ponte Corvo had been of the shutting the stable door after the horses bolted variety. Uh, they were files on him from September 1950 onwards when they were trying to establish what had actually happened, what danger was he, etc., etc. But nothing on him before he left. And the lost file turned out to be the file on him from the time that he had been hired until the time of his disappearance. And this revealed two things. One wasn't very much interesting, but nonetheless important. First of all, they had no evidence whatsoever against him. There's a lot of gossip, but that was all. At best, there was gossip that he had a communist family and this, that, and the other, but no evidence whatsoever that would stand up in court that he'd ever done anything untoward. But then um, there was a letter sent... The last entry before he disappeared was a letter that had been sent from the British Embassy in Washington to the head of MI5 in London. And it had been written on July the 13th. That's just 10 days before Ponte Corvo goes off on holiday. And this letter basically said that the FBI were interested in this atomic scientist, Bruno Ponte Corvo, uh, because of they were asking questions about communism and his communist associations, etc., etc., and was there any information in Britain as to whether he had been involved with communism or communists during his time on the Manhattan Project or now at Harwell? And uh, this letter was received in London and date stamped received on the 19th of July. And basically, that was it. No more comments, nothing said about it. The thing that struck me was, well, this is a very interesting letter asking very interesting questions. It's being asked just a week or so before he goes off on this holiday from which he never appears. But in this letter, there was a mention of somebody who was also in the Washington embassy uh, aware of this FBI interest. And it turns out that this was Kim Philby. This letter, and I've got the whole letter written uh, in, in my book, so one can actually decode it in detail. But this letter basically says, I, the writer, who was actually MI5's representative in the Washington Embassy, and Kim Philby, who was MI6's representative in the Washington Embassy, have been trying to find answers to this question, and we can't. So what this says was that Kim Philby is aware that the FBI are interested in this atomic scientist uh, for communist reasons. 
And the other thing that Kim Philby knew at that time was that the Soviet diplomatic codes had been cracked. He was one of only half a dozen people that knew that fact. He was also very interested in that fact because he was wanting to know whether there was any information about him in these, because he already knew that uh, Donald McLean of Burgess and McLean, the other uh, two in the, the Cambridge spiring of which Philby was the most infamous, perhaps, uh, that they were already on the track of him. So Philby was watching everything at that time. So there is Philby aware that the Soviets are interested in Bruno Pontecorvo. He also is aware that there are two spies as yet unidentified by codenamed Malad and Quantum. Uh, Malad, we now know, was Ted Hall. Quantum, we now know, was a man called uh, Podolsky. Neither of them was Pontecorvo, but but Philby did not know that. He knows that there are two as yet unidentified spies, and he knows that the FBI is interested in this atomic scientist Pontecorvo, and Philby's job, as he confessed himself in his own autobiography, was to contact uh, his Soviet masters, who were really his... As he said, I was employed by the Soviets but paid by the British taxpayer, was roughly how he described his life. Um, now, at that time, Philby refused to deal with the Soviet embassy in Washington. He was very suspicious of them. He was dealing with Guy Burgess, who was still based in London. So Philby would alert Burgess in London. Burgess would alert the Soviet embassy in London. The Soviet embassy would then alert Moscow who then trying to make contact with Pontecorvo, who by this stage is on holiday. And it's only at the end of his holiday, when he's down in Rome, that he makes contact with his cousin, the infamous Emilio Sereni, the man who is now a member of the Italian government as a communist, the man who converted Bruno to communism all those years before. And Sereni goes backwards and forwards to, to the Soviet Union all the time, and it is through him, I'm sure, that the contact with Bruno was then made. And within 48 hours, Bruno, his wife, and the three young children uh, are, are on a plane uh, with tickets paid for by the KGB. And I found the airline manifest, which shows their names, their baggage information, which shows that their total baggage weighed 60 kilograms, and it was in 10 bags. And you can do the math. That's hand baggage 10 times over, right? It was just camping gear. All they had with them was the stuff they'd taken on their camping holiday. And if you're planning to make an organized defection to the Soviet Union, you don't do it that way. You don't leave your wife's fur coat at home in Abingdon. In fact, you could have planned it and moved there yourself if you wanted to. It wasn't illegal. Nobody would have stopped you at all. So I think it is now clear we know what happened because also on the airline manifest, there are two further people whose ticket numbers are exactly in sequence with the Pontecorvo and these two people are, without doubt, the KGB minders who are there to protect their investment. So uh, the story of Pontecorvo after he defected is is somewhat uh, tragic. His defection didn't go at all the way he probably envisioned it would. Uh, that's absolutely true. For the first five years, uh, they were completely cut off from everybody. They were, in effect, under house arrest. Even scientists in the Soviet Union were not told of his existence. They were told there was a professor at Dubna, but the name of the professor uh, was uh, not to be to be mentioned. He was basically under house arrest for five years. Um, then, for the next uh, twenty-three years, um, he was restricted to uh, the Soviet Union. He was not able to leave the country. But he could have, if he had been able to go to CERN in Geneva to do an experiment 
to back up an idea that he had had, I'm sure that he would have probably shared a Nobel Prize that went to Steinberger, Schwartz and Letterman, three Americans who had the same idea themselves and were able to do the experiment in, in Brookhaven. Um, but for Pontecorvo's family, it was exceedingly tough because his wife had no reason to be there other than to accompany him. And uh, we now know that she uh, had mental breakdown and spent uh, large amounts of time uh, in a sanatorium. And uh, for her, it was a, an utter tragedy. Uh, for their family in the West, who for years didn't know what had happened to them and then were unable to see them or make contact for 28 years, was also very difficult. And as I said earlier, uh, neither he or his wife ever saw their, uh, their parents again. So uh, my conclusion was, when I compared his life, that uh, he, in many ways, suffered more than Fuchs and Nunmay, both of whom were sent to jail, but for the order of seven or nine years. Pontecorvo spent uh, 43 years of his life in what was initially the Soviet Union and until his death in 1993. So he was able to keep doing science in the Soviet Union, um, but his, like you say, his movements were quite strictly controlled. Do we know why his, he was unable to leave the country and why he was kept secret for so long? That is a very good question. Paranoia, I suppose. I mean, I, it was not unusual for intellectuals in the Soviet Union, uh, who, especially if they were not long-term, very senior members of, of the party, uh, restriction was more the norm than not. Uh, to be allowed to go to conferences abroad, uh, you had to be uh, very well placed for a long time and have good connections. He was, however, able to do science, and he did good science. I mean, the science in the Soviet Union was first rate, and uh, the theoreticians in particular were very, very strong. They didn't have the same access to uh, frontline experimental tools that we did in the West, the growth of electronics in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, which really uh, pushed, I mean, a new age of, of computers and ability to do fine, detailed, very high quality experimentation, which we took for granted here in the West, uh, that was certainly uh, not the case uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union. But the theorists were very, very strong. And Ponty had great ideas. He had to publish them in Russian, in Russian journals. And so they weren't translated for a couple of years. And so we didn't know about them until a little later over here in the West. And it was during that period of time that in particular the Steinberger, Schwartz, Lederman independent uh, breakthrough took place uh, on ideas that Ponty himself had had. So the, the, the abilities to do science was certainly very, very good. Um, why it was that the Soviets restricted their intellectuals, um, others are more, much more expert than I on, on the, the nature of life in the Soviet Union. So one of the things that uh, Bruno Pontecorvo is remembered for scientifically is his work on neutrinos. What contributions did he make to that part of physics? Um, he was known as Mr. Neutrino because his contributions probably were so great. He had been a student of Fermi, and Fermi had had made the first theory of beta radioactivity incorporating the neutrino. And Bruno had the insight in 1946 that neutrinos might be produced in large numbers at a nuclear reactor, large enough so that although it's very difficult or almost impossible to capture a neutrino, if you had enough of them and a big enough net, you might occasionally capture one. So he wrote a paper in 1946 when he was at Chalk River on ideas about uh, detecting neutrinos from a nuclear reactor. And 
that paper also suggested the possibility that neutrinos could be produced from the sun. And it further suggested a way of detecting neutrinos if they came from the sun. And that was what Ray Davis himself put to use and 40 years later uh, won the Nobel Prize for proving the fact the sun indeed emits what's called solar neutrinos. Unfortunately, Bruno had died by the time that that was all established. So that's why he missed out on a share of Davis's Nobel Prize. Uh, the second thing that he did, it was Bruno who first pointed out the fact that when a supernova explosion happens, uh, it should produce neutrinos in such vast amounts that it may be possible to detect a supernova via neutrinos. And indeed, he was proved right there when supernova 1987A occurred. Um, that was detected by a blast of neutrinos that travelled for a 80,000 light years. <laughs> They've been traveling for 180,000 years across space until a few of them passed through uh, the Earth uh, at breakfast time, English time, and in the night, Canadian time. And a few of these were captured in experiments uh, that were uh, taking place in Japan. And uh, Koshiba shared the Nobel Prize for that. Again, Bruno regrettably having died by that stage. The third thing is that Bruno had the insight that there's more than one variety of neutrino what we call muon neutrinos and electron neutrinos, and that under certain circumstances, neutrinos can oscillate backwards and forwards between these two varieties. Both of these things we now know are correct. They are essential foundations in our modern picture of particles and forces. It was the experiment to prove that fact that he proposed and was forbidden to do by the Soviets, uh, who wouldn't allow him to go to Geneva to do it, which won the prize for Steinberger, Schwartz and Lederman. So modern neutrino physics and neutrino astronomy, I think it's probably fair to say that Bruno Pontecorvo was the father of neutrino astronomy. So, and this is a purely speculative question, how much greater an impact do you think he might have had had he remained in Western Europe? I suppose a simple answer to that is that had he had the ideas that he did have, in Western Europe, without a doubt, the idea of two neutrinos and the experiment to do them, uh, he would certainly have shared in that. I, I think that is certainly true. He certainly missed out on that Nobel Prize by being forbidden to do the experiment himself. He wouldn't have been forbidden to do the experiment had he been in the West. We would have given him the credit for it. Whether he would have succeeded in the experiment, of course, we, we, we don't know. But there's a more profound way of turning this around, which is to say, of course, why does one have the ideas one has? You have them in part from what I call coffee housing. The people you come in contact with, the experiences you have, subconscious ideas happen and in conversations they become conscious. Whether he would have had the same experiences and conversations in the West uh, and had the ideas, you know, it's a, an alternative history that we can never know. But I think the simplistic answer is that certainly had you taken his list of experiences and transported them across to the West, he certainly would have been much better known and I think would have been on the Nobel list without a doubt. So uh, later on, once Pontecorvo was able to travel outside the Eastern Bloc countries again, uh, what was the response of the rest of the physics world? How was he treated by his colleagues? The ones that he had known back in the 1930s, who were still around, some treated him quite coolly. Um, one of his colleagues, Emilio Segre, was particularly cool when, when they met. Um, the reasons are complicated and uh, varied. Podikovo and Segre and the other members of Fermi's team, um, they had won a patent for their discovery. 
but the patents had got mired in controversy after the end of the Second World War, and indeed the lawyer uh, had dropped the case. This was in 1950 when the lawyer was trying to uh, argue that the patent should be returned to the scientists and away from the American military because it had been used during the, the Manhattan Project. The lawyer suddenly panicked when he realised that there was a, a man in his team uh, who had disappeared to the Soviet Union. Uh, and this was at the height of McCarthyism, so the lawyer just basically dropped it. And uh, certainly Segray, among the others, felt you know, that uh, they had lost a great chance for uh, w winning a significant amount of money because of the actions of Bruno. Um, others uh, who were more right-wing, shall we say, cold-shouldered him, apparently, at, when he was uh, at, at a conference. Uh, on the other hand, you know, others of his colleagues uh, didn't care one way or the other. They are scientists, and they're interested in him as a scientist. And uh, whether he did anything or not, well, many say he couldn't possibly have done. He wasn't the sort of person who could have done. He was far too gregarious, etc., etc. Well, actually, as I pointed out in the book, uh, Kim Philby was also gregarious, and uh, my old mentor, Rudy Piles, who was a bosom pal of Klaus Fuchs, was absolutely devastated when he discovered what Fuchs had done. So, actually, if you're really successful and able to keep secrets, then even your friends don't necessarily know what happened. So do you think, after all of your investigating and reading of his work and his family and his life, do you think he was a spy? Well, let me just give you two little narratives to help you to that one. One thing that happened just uh, a few months before he died was that uh, a team from ABC in the States were making a program about the Rosenbergs, who were killed in the electric chair uh, in the 1950 fallout after Klaus Fuchs. Um, and this team were over in, in, in Moscow. This was the period just after Yeltsin had come to power when for a short time things sort of opened up. And th this team interviewed uh, two or three in people, one of whom included uh, Bruno Pontecorvo. They asked for an interview with Bruno, and he declined the interview. And he, he declined in Russian, but uh, I was told by the contact, who remains anonymous, uh, that the phrase was burned on their mind, and translated, it is, I want to be remembered as a great scientist, not as your f***ing spy. Now, it depends how you put the emphasis on that as to whether you take that as an admission or not. If he had spent 40 years of his life really being denigrated for having spied, which he never did, uh, he would say, I want to be remembered as a great scientist, not as your spy. Whereas if instead he had spied and his career and life and everything had been messed up by it, and that the KGB, in his opinion, had sort of chewed him up and, and ruined things, he would say, I want to be remembered as a great scientist and not as your f***ing spy. But we don't know which of those two ways he said it. So it's yet another enigma. So finally, my conclusion, well, I invite people who've read the book in their entirety to say, would you convict him in a criminal court, which is beyond reasonable doubt, or in a civil court, which is balance of probability. I don't think he could be convicted in a criminal court. There is not any solid evidence. There's plenty of circumstantial, but there is no solid evidence that beyond reasonable doubt, a clever defence lawyer would not be able to argue away. What intrigues me, though, is that the arguments you make to exclude this or that or the other are all sort of different and varied. You have to make a different argument for each and every case. So I sort of feel 
I would love to have seen a case argued on the balance of probability. And the analogy that I give is a scientific one. Centuries ago, we had the belief that the Earth was the centre of the solar system. And it was possible, with that wrong belief, to describe the motions of the planets by introducing lots of epicycles. However, if you made one simple assumption, namely that the sun is at the centre, everything fell into place. And it's a bit like that with Ponticorvo. If you believe that Ponticorvo didn't pass any information, it's like the Earth being at the centre of the solar system. You have to make a different explanation for each and every little bit. If, however, you make the assumption that he did, everything falls into place. Frank, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about Frank Close, his work, or his books, we've got links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our website, you can also find our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as links to our Twitter feed and our Facebook page, where you can keep up with the latest from the Science for the People crew. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can subscribe to get new episodes of the show automatically downloaded to all your various devices. And if you like the work we do, we'd be tickled if you'd leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. (laughs) 